Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward, along with my co-host and the creator of this genius show, Mr. Tom Jokic. Tom? Hey, Christopher. Okay, so as you know, we've had a number of requests from our listeners, whether it's in person from people that we know, or on Twitter, or on Instagram, or on Facebook, for specific Motown artists. And it made me think a few weeks ago, you know what? I wonder what we have. I wonder what we really have in the archives from Motown artists. And Christopher, I think you can agree that we have hit an absolute gold mine. Oh, for sure. Yeah, you, you have outdone yourself as an archivist, sir. Well, thanks. You know, not only do we have almost every major artist. So we have Smokey Robinson, Diana Ross, Michael Jackson, The Temptations. We have Martha Reeves, Mary Wilson, Mary Wells, Stevie Wonder. Unbelievable. And when those artists start telling their story, it also becomes this narrative of the history of Motown and a behind-the-scenes look at music's most famous record label. So it's really astonishing. We had a lot of feedback from our recent show about One Hit Wonders. And I got to tell you, I think this show is going to be just as good because it's going to move just as fast with just as many little song snippets and great recollections. I am so excited for this show. And I know that once you heard Smokey, just Smokey alone, you knew Mm -hmm. that this was going to be a special show. Well, you told me what you wanted to do. And I'm like, Motown, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But I got to say, I did not realize the riches that the archives held uh, when yeah. it comes to telling this story, I just love all the different voices, and they all have a, you know, a different take on their their place in the story. It's wonderful, and some of the stories are really exhilarating and exciting, but some of these interviews are kind of bittersweet and tragic in hindsight, because many of the artists that we're hearing from have long since passed away, and so to be missing those people, but to hear them tell their story within the context of Motown is just really beautiful. And like I said, just a touch tragic at times. So let's get started with our Motown special. So take a good look at my face. You'll see my smile place. That's Smokey Robinson and the Miracles and Tracks of My Tears from 1965. Tom, The Motown story, well-documented and oft-repeated, is one of the most extraordinary stories in modern entertainment history. I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that. Right. Barry Gordy, a young entrepreneur in Detroit, started his own label 60 years ago. He bought a property in Detroit at 2648 West Grand Boulevard. He named it Hitsville, USA. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) And then with some incredible savvy signings, went about living up to the name that he'd already created. The parade of legends started with Smokey Robinson, who was lead singer in a local doo-wop group who met Barry Gordy at age 17, that is when Smokey was 17, and continued with Martha and the Vandellas, Mary Wells, Marvin Gaye, the Supremes, the Four Tops, the Jackson Five, and Stevie Wonder, to name just a few. I don't know if you've heard this number or not before, but in the 1960s, they had 79 Billboard Top 10 records. Wow. I mean, that's... Yeah, they were putting out some hits, those people. You know, Christopher, what I was doing is uh, while I was preparing this this episode, I was listening to a lot of Motown. And honestly, to paraphrase that old hit from 60s radio, 
the hits just kept on coming. Like, it was unbelievable. And, you know, you could go to, like, Marvin Gaye, and there's 10 amazing songs right there, maybe more, right? And then you'd go yeah. to... Then you go to Martha and the Vandellas, and you think, okay, well, what? Dancing in the street, and then what else? And you go, oh, my God, nowhere to run. And then you go, heat wave. And then you go to Smokey. And honestly, I think I may be a bigger Smokey fan than I ever was, <laughs> just in light of putting this show together, because you're right. I know how you feel about Smokey, and he is an absolute genius as a songwriter. And we're going to hear some of those moments in the few minutes to come about the genius of Smokey Robinson. Well, I think one of the reasons that Barry Gordy spotted that genius in Smokey is because Barry was a, a songwriter himself. His best right. known song is Money, Money, That's What I Want. Oh, yeah. And he brought in songwriting teams, in particular the Holland Dozier and Holland team. And he ran the place, as Lamont Dozier said, with the discipline of an assembly line boss. Now, his teams were specifically assigned to write for the company's artist roster, and they'd have a Monday morning meeting beginning at 9 a.m. And if you were one minute late, according to Lamont, you were out of luck until the following Monday. Oh. But, oh, the hits. You really got a hold on me. My guy, where did our love go? Sugar Pie Honey Bunch, can't help myself. I mean, you know, it's crazy. This week's show is dedicated to the amazing, timeless music of Motown and the artists who made it happen. And we'll hear from artists like Stevie and Martha Reeves, as well as songwriting legend Lamont Dozier, but the telling of this story begins with Smokey Robinson. I was born in Detroit, Michigan, and um, got involved in music. Uh, well, I've really always been involved in it all my life that I can remember. Uh, got involved in it professionally through an audition that uh, I went to with the Miracles, uh, my wife Claudette and Pete and Ronnie and Bob. The audition took place in Detroit, and at our particular audition, Barry Gordy happened to be there. He was writing songs for this guy at the time. He was, um, this guy handled Jackie Wilson and Etta James and a few of the other people who were big black artists at that time. Barry was writing songs for those people. Rather than singing a lot of songs that were popular or current at that time, we sang about four or five songs that I had written while I was going to high school. One song really caught his ear and it turned out to be the B-side or the flip side of our first recording. The song that caught his ear was called uh, My Mama Done Told Me. So after the audition was over and we had to uh, fail the audition to the other guy, <laughs> we went outside and Barry came outside and he wanted to know where we got the material from that we sang and I told him I had written it. He looked at some more of my songs. I had a book of about 100 songs at that time. And he looked at them and critiqued them, so on and so forth. And uh, we sort of like struck up a relationship from that. Oh, man, I wonder what that book is worth now, huh? <laughs> Yikes. And, and how many songs that maybe he just didn't bother pulling together? You know, he just left them in the notebook, right? Oh, yeah, that original book with 100 songs written by Smokey Robinson. Like, there's a, there's a record label in a book right there. Well, Smokey's an amazing storyteller, and mm -hmm. he, he unravels the beginnings and the formation of the Motown label in wonderful fashion here. And Motown Records was really started because of the fact that people Barry had had to deal with in the business at that time were not straight up people and they didn't pay properly and those things like that so we decided to start a company and um, we had a motto that honesty was our only policy that's what Motown was made of because we always paid our people if they had two cents coming at royalty time they got it you know 
1959, we had our first national record with a record uh, on the Miracles called uh, Way Over There. It was a thing whereas we were not set up for the national distribution, but however, like I said, these other people were not paying us properly, so we decided we might as well gamble, you know, and go national, which we did. And then we were fortunate enough to come right back with Shop Around, which was a blockbuster, and uh, it established everything. Uh, the company, our group, and really got the ball rolling. And we were fortunate enough to come right behind Shop Around, right on the heels of it, maybe a month or two later, with a record on the Marvelettes called Please Mr. Postman. And uh, so with being that hot, you know, really did a good thing for us. And then I had uh, my first productive job, really, when producing a record by myself, was with a girl named Mary Wells and uh, had a record on her called The One Who Really Loves You. And we had about four or five blockbusting records out at the same time, you know, which established us very well with the record distributors and the record buying public. From late 1961, the very first Motown number one hit, Please Mr. Postman by the Marvelettes. So Smokey just told a great story there about how the big distributors were ripping off the small labels to such a degree that Barry Gordy decided to distribute Motown's music himself. And Sam Phillips at Sun Records initially had the same problem too. So that's why these labels had to gamble. And in those cases, especially in Motown's case, it paid off big time. You know, it's funny when you, you, you trace back to the origins of Motown. I mean, I, I came up, I was, when I first started listening to the radio, Motown was already happening. So, for right. example, when I heard Please Mr. Postman by the Beatles, I just thought it was one of their songs, you know? Mm-hmm. Or You Really Got a Hold on Me. Yeah. But uh, the Marvelous version rocks, that's for sure. It really does. And it's raw. Like, there's something different about that yeah. song as compared to many other Motown songs. That one is like a, a cry from the heart. And that vocalist, whoever she is, I'm sorry, I don't know her name, but she she was like a little bit off key and hoarse. But it gave urgency to the song in a way that I think someone who is like right on key and a little bit more controlled, I think it would have taken away from the from the passion of the song. It's a great, great performance. Well, similarly, Smokey's version of You Really Got a Hold on Me. I mean, the emotional... Yes content of that is it's completely different than what you hear from the Beatles, although I didn't mind yes. that version either. Tom, I'm going to take a little tangent. There's a legendary remark, we'll call it an apocryphal remark, that says that Bob Dylan referred to Smokey Robinson as America's greatest living poet. But what does Smokey say? Well, you know, I've, I've got to ask Bob if he really said that. You know, <laughs> People have been saying that for so long. <laughs> I've got to ask Bob if he said that, you know. Bob is, uh, I, I've never had the real pleasure of actually just meeting Bob and sitting down and talking to him, you know. I know his wife uh, very well, and I want to clear that up in as much as his wife and I went to drama school together. And uh, she's a very nice person, and uh, we used to talk about Bob a great deal, you know. But Bob is a very is a person who is very much to himself. He very seldom goes anywhere in the public eye or whatever. But I would I would love to meet the man because he has so much to say musically. And uh, I listen to him, but I would like to know him as a person one day if it um, happens. That's Smokey Robinson talking about 
Bob Dylan. Still much more to come on this special tribute to the music and artists of Motown. And by the way, if you want to hear more from the R&B acts of the past, we have Tina Turner in episode 202, Prince in 107, Lionel Richie and Beyonce both in conversation, although separately, with Marilyn Dennis in episodes 506 and 403. Are you taking notes now? (laughs) Also, Donna Summer in an utterly charming interview in episode 208. Simply subscribe to Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. This is Famous Lost Words, heard as a podcast in 31 countries around the world and on radio stations across Canada. I'm Tom Jokic. And I'm Christopher Ward. You're listening to our special tribute to the music of Motown. So far, the focus has been on the great Smokey Robinson as he tells the stories of so many great Motown hits and artists, including how the label's success had a great deal to do with appealing to both black and white audiences. I was going to say that, you know, I think that we are the first company or we were the first company that was black owned that ever crossed over into the white market. Our records began to sell so big with white kids back in the early days, we sort of like were the the pilgrims or something for the crossover music. We used to get letters from white kids who lived in, in um like suburban areas of Detroit even, Gross Point and those things like that. And they would say, well, we sneaked and bought your record and uh, we play them all the time, you know. And our parents wouldn't understand if they knew we were listening to them, but uh, we love you, that kind of thing, you know. I always look upon Motown Records as the company that really kind of like fused the musics together because of the fact that we started to, to sell so many records to the white buying public. It really establishes, but we had another kind of sound. See, we were we were black and uh, we were funky, but we were clean funk. You know what I mean? So that's what permitted us to cross over. I'm sure. There's a lot in that clip, huh? And Smokey hits mm-hmm. the nail on the head about crossing over into the white market. But he also says something very revealing at the end: how Motown was clean black music, and that the funkier and dare I say more soulful stuff, would not be embraced by white America quite as much. I'm not sure that's necessarily true, but it's certainly a a very interesting and probably a fairly um, salient point by him. Of course, that would change as the years went on, especially with the rise of artists like Wilson Pickett and James Brown and Aretha Franklin and other artists on the Atlantic label, for example. I, yeah, it's funny when you pick words like soulful and mm-hmm. earthiness was another word that was used a lot to describe black music at the time that was yeah. running parallel to the Motown scene. You know, people like Ray Charles, for example. Oh, yeah. And uh, I mean, you know, these artists, a lot of them did reach a white audience. Little Richard, another perfectly good example. But yeah. definitely the Motown sound was relatively innocent. There was a sweetness about it. But also the other thing is, remember, these artists were young. Some of them were teenagers when they were in those bands. So it seemed right. kind of appropriate in some ways. Yeah, exactly right. Tom, Smokey's history lesson continues with the story of what Motown had to overcome to be a success. See, we were up under the double hammer in as much as we were an infant record company and we were black owned. I always look at it, whereas, especially back in those days when the the racial situation was not what it is today, it wasn't nearly as advanced as it is today, and um, like I said, you know, the letters that we used to get from the white kids saying that they had to sneak and buy our records and things like that would show you what I meant, and I always think that if people had recognized or if those who 
were in power to do something about crushing us at that particular time had dared to dream that we would develop into what we are today, they might have tried to crush us. Christopher, you know I'm a big uh, history fan, and I've done a lot of reading about Mm -hmm. American history and a lot of reading about rock and roll. And I can tell you the one issue that comes up in almost every single book that I read on either topic, whether it's American history or the beginning of rock and roll, is the issue of race. And that clip right there says so much. Here's one of the great stories of rescuing a song from obscurity. Smokey talks about Shop Around. Shop Around was a song that I had originally written for a dude named Barrett Strong. We had a big, big record with him across the country called Money. And uh, we needed um, some follow-up material for Barrett. So I was writing some follow-up material for him for that record. And uh, Shop Around was one of the songs. And so I thought it was just a dynamic song, like, you know, I was very happy with what I had, and I showed it to Barry one day. We were in the studio down there. We were just having the studio built in this garage, you know. And so he and I were down there, we were fooling around. I said, hey, man, I got this tune for Barry. I don't want you to hear this, you know. And in fact, we were just getting through playing ping pong. We used to have ping pong tournaments among all the people in the company and chess tournaments, you know. And, uh, I mean, they would be bloodthirsty, like we were competing for the gold cup of ping pong or something. <laughs> so uh, we had just finished playing some ping pong, and um, I went to the piano, because the ping pong table was right there in the studio, you know. So we went over to the piano, and I played this song for him, and I sang it. And he said, hey, man, he said, uh, I'm going to cut that song on you. He said, I like that song. I like the way you're singing that, you know. And why don't we do this here? You know, why don't we change this? this chord or this part to right here and so on and so forth. So you finish up the lyrics and I'm going to work on this chord change thing. So I said, fine. So that's what we did. And um, I went into the studio and uh, I produced a track on it with the group and everything. And it was it was a slow, funky kind of thing. It was very slow and funky and what we called a funky groove at that time. And uh, the record came out and it had been on the streets for about two weeks and I contacted the flu and I'd been in bed for maybe a couple of days with the flu and one morning about three o'clock in the morning Barry called my house and he said uh, hey man get the group and come to the studio I've already called the musicians and we're gonna recut shop around he said I got another idea on it and uh, I think it's gonna be a smash cuz it's gonna be a big pop record you know so I said, hey, man, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. He said, I don't care. He said, get the group and come over. He said, I've called the musicians, you know. So I said, okay. So I called the group, and everybody thought I was crazy, you know. And uh, I called them, and uh, we went over to the studio. When we got there, the piano player that he had called couldn't make that session, you know, because he had a session early in the morning, he wanted to sleep or something, you know. So Barry played the piano. And uh, we re-recorded the tracks and things on Shop Around and uh, put it out, and the rest is history. My mama told me, you better shop around. Oh, yeah, you better shop around. That's Shop Around, Smokey and the Miracles from 1960, a great song and a great telling of how that song was already released and on the radio when they decided to redo it. That is crazy. (laughs) Yeah, that's not going to happen now, (laughs) I don't think. (laughs) Tom, here's the origin story for a Motown classic. I Second That Emotion is a song that started from the title. 
You know, songs start from different things, you know. That song started from the title, and there's a co-writer on the song, Al Cleveland, who is a friend of mine, and at the time we were living in Detroit, and he and I were Christmas shopping. And we went in this store, and uh, we were talking to the sales girl about something. He made a comment, and rather than him saying, I second the motion to what she had said, he said, I second that emotion. And uh, we started laughing about it. Then we say, hey, man, it's a great tune title, you know. So we went and we wrote the tune then. <laughs> but if you feel like loving me, then you got the notion. I second that emotion. 1967, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, I second that emotion. Another good example of one of the many ways a song idea starts. I never tire of hearing those stories, but mm-hmm. maybe it's my special interest. <laughs> Smokey talks about the song Mickey's Monkey. Remember that one? Oh, yeah. Anyway, listen to the roundup of help they got on this song. Mickey's Monkey was uh, started originally by Lamont Dozier, who was one of the famed writing team, Holland Dozier Holland. And Lamont has since gone out on his own and is doing some solo things. But uh, that song was started by him. So I was going through the piano room one day, and uh, he was sitting at the piano, and he was playing this rhythm. Don't, 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 that thing. And he was singing the part. Lumpy, lumpy, la. So I said, well, hey, what's that tune you're singing there? You know, I really like that. You know, he said, oh, this is a tune that I'm getting ready for somebody, man. He said, I don't know who I'm getting ready for, and uh, I just like that. You know, I'm playing that. You know, I think I might do it on maybe Mary Wells or something like that. I said, well, don't you think it'd be better on a guy? He said, well, maybe so, because the monkey thing is in, you know. He said, and I'm thinking about calling Mickey's monkey. I said, well, oh, I said, why don't you cut that on us? So he said, okay, man, you really like that? I said, yeah. So they cut it on us, and that was that was it. And we had uh, all we had a lot of our artists singing in the background of that record, Diana Ross and uh, Florence Ballard, who was then one of the Supremes, and uh, Martha Reeves and, and a couple of the Temps, Otis and Melvin. And uh, that's how we used to record, though. Everybody sang on everybody's stuff, you know. Mickey's Monkey from 1963, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, and a great story about collaborating with Lamont Dozier, who we will hear from, by the way, in part two of this special Motown tribute. Still to come, Smokey talking about more classics, and he reveals his favorite Motown artist to work with. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward as we unearth some of the greatest moments from one of the biggest interview archives in the world. This week, it's the music and artists of Motown. And Christopher, you are in your glory. It's always true that the music that you grow up with that first gave you those thrills is music that you never forget and you never lose your love for it. And boy, this is it. This is one of my favorite moments among many. Smokey Robinson offering a simple and insightful look at the process of writing songs. The music was written by Stevie Wonder. He and a guy named Henry Cosby, who was one of our producers and our A&R director in Detroit, recorded a track of Nothing But The Music. And they brought it to me and they said, hey man, we got a great track here. Would you write us a song for it? So I said, yeah, fine, you know, because I love the track. And the little part, the little calliope part that's in there, boom, 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 but I don't, 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 made me think of the circus. So I said, now what's a good thing to write about the circus that could still touch people's hearts? And uh, I started to think about Pagliacci. 
that was how it started. The tears of a clown. That's from 1970, Tears of a Clown, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, and that just shows the sheer intelligence and creativity of Smokey Robinson right there. Just like Pagliacci did, I'm going to keep my sadness hid. It's so great because it's kind of colloquial and it's kind of learned. Like, it's just a beautiful song in so many ways. And a timeless pop melody. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So who, Tom, would you think would be Smokey's favorite artist to work with? Wow. I already know the answer because I've heard this clip before. But if you would have asked me without knowing, I think I probably would have guessed maybe the the Temptations because they kind of, you know, with the way you do the things you do and they kind of interpreted his work so well with Get Ready, the way you do the things you do. So that would have been my guess, I think. But I know that's not the right answer, is it? No, it's Marvin Gaye. <laughs> Out of all the acts that I've ever worked with as far as recording people, I would probably say that I enjoyed working with Marvin Gaye more so than any of them because he is a songster. And you show Marvin your song, you say, hey, the song goes like this. And then he goes into the studio and he sings it like he wrote it. I mean, that's just how he is. I mean, he he does stuff with your song that you never would have thought of him doing. And it's dynamite. From 1965, Marvin Gaye ain't that peculiar. Smokey was deeply affected by Marvin's murder on April 1st, 1984. And he thought it was some kind of cruel April Fool's joke. But then he called Marvin's wife, Anna, who confirmed the terrible news about the death of Marvin. Boy, that was a sad ending for a great artist, wasn't it? Yeah. Tom, one of Smokey Robinson's longest artistic relationships is with Diana Ross. Well, the Supremes, Diana, I've known her since she was probably about six or eight. You know, we grew up on the same street there. She used to always come down to my basement when we were rehearsing, sit on the steps and sing, that kind of stuff. When she started to go to high school, she expressed her desire, you know, to me, that she wanted to sing. So I promised her, I said, well, when you graduate from high school, no, I didn't. I said, okay, I'll take you over and let Barry hear you. So there were four of them at that time. Diana... Mary, Florence, and a girl named Barbara. They sang, and they sang pretty good, you know, so... And I always liked Diana's voice. She has a different sound to her voice, you know. So I took them over, and I let Barry hear them. And at that time, we weren't signing up high school kids or anybody in high school. You know, we made it a policy that you had to be out of high school. So he said, well, hey, you know, after they get out of high school, we'll listen to them again, and so on and so forth. So while Diana was going to high school, I promised her, I said, look, when you get out of high school, I'm going to record you. So she said, fine, and uh, when she got out of high school, when, when they graduated from high school, they all graduated about the same time, and I just started to record them, you know. That was it. That's the Supremes from 1968 Love Child, co-written by Canadian singer-songwriter R. Dean Taylor. That song was one of the earliest Motown hits to address social issues, Christopher, I don't know how you feel, but that's an underrated song in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. It's, I think, one of the very best Supreme songs and another huge hit, too. Yeah. And also, doesn't it have the best use of glockenspiel you've ever heard in a pop <laughs> tune? <laughs> uh, 
<clears throat> I had not noticed that fact, actually, but uh, now that you tell me. Well, just listen, listen. Here's the beginning of the song. Okay, so right there, Christopher, that bright ringing sound just livens up the proceedings, and it puts a candy coating on what is otherwise a very serious song. Well, it's put a candy coating on my day, and I want to thank you. Hey, I got a question for you. Yeah. Didn't R. Dean Taylor have a hit record on Motown? Yes, he sure did. It was called Indiana Wants Me. Let's play a little clip of that. Indiana wants me. That's Ardeen Taylor, I think, from the early 70s, and Indiana Wants Me, and he wrote a whole bunch of other stuff. He did great work for Motown, but because he's Canadian, that song is considered Canadian content, and if you're listening from outside of Canada, um, you may not know that uh, that the government requires that Canadian radio stations play a certain amount of Canadian music, and that certainly goes a long way to helping Canadian talent and foster the music industry. So when Indiana Wants Me came out, we're going, hey, that's CanCon, or Canadian content, and it certainly got a lot of play here, but it was also a legitimate hit in places uh, outside of Canada. I'm glad to get caught up on my Ardeen Taylor history. I, I was <laughs> sadly lacking in that department. Hey, Tom, now here's another great story about launching a band that became a Motown legend. The Temptations, uh, I brought them over. I had known Otis and Melvin from high school. They uh, had gone to the same high school that, that I went to, you know, and the same thing, I promised them, you know, that when they got out, I would take them over and have them heard and everything. And uh, nothing really big happened with them for a long time. And one time we were, when I say we, I mean the Miracles, uh, we were on a tour. And uh, we were coming back home one morning. It was probably about 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning. Everyone in the car was asleep with the exception of Bobby Rogers and myself. And I had been going over this tune for the Temps because I had been working with them kind of like exclusively. And I really wanted to get a big record on them, you know, because they were such great guys and everything, and they wanted to do their thing so bad. So I was on the way back home, and um, I kept thinking about this this song, the way you do the things you do. I was singing that, you know. And so Bobby Rogers was the only other person in the car who was awake, and we started to work on, like, some lyrics for it. We came back, and I recorded it on them, and it was a real smash, and it started, you know, kind of like got them going and everything. Temptations from 1964 and The Way You Do the Things You Do, the first big hit by a band that would soon become legendary. Oh my gosh, I love those songs. The Temptations really did it for me, and I think it was the variety of all those different voices that were featured. They didn't have just one singer, they had like three, you know? Three amazing lead singers. And you want one example. When you have a moment, just listen to the song Can't Get Next to You. And you want mm. every single range of the singers in that band from high highs to that low low and everything in between and soulful and gutsy just listen to can't get next to you by the temptations i'll listen to that song any day of the week tom absolutely <laughs> and and the same the same holds true in papa was a rolling stone i mean oh, you can for just sure. see the, it's almost like a little opera in a, in a, in a four-minute pop song. I, I, it, still, it still blows my mind, that song. One of the all-time greats, that's for sure. Tom, along with choreography and vocal coaching, of course, Motown had an instructor for grooming, poise, and social graces. 
Can you imagine if we had that for this show? What a show we'd have. I mean, anyway, Smokey elaborates. We had a school called uh, Artist Development, and all of our acts had to go there before they were presented to the public, you know. They went through different phases of show business. We had people there who were old show business people or people who had been in show business. And um, our girls were taught uh, choreography and uh, makeup, hygiene, vocal instructions. Our fellows were taught the same things, dancing, exercise, that kind of stuff, you know, vocal exercises. When we presented an act to the public, they were ready to be seen, which was, uh, I, I believe, uh, the, lo the longevity of our acts. You can find Motown acts who have been around for years and years and years and years and years where others haven't. And even those who have faded almost into what seems like should be oblivion are still known, the Marvelettes for one. And it's because they made a good impression when they were seen. Well, we've heard about that Motown Charm School before, and there's Smokey Robinson with an excellent behind-the-scenes glimpse of that. Smokey goes on to reveal Barry Gordy's hit acumen. At the time I wrote my girl, Ronnie White and I, who is the guy in the Miracles, I was talking about the Stevie Wonder thing, finished up the lyrics on that. That was just for an assignment because we had to do an album on The Temptations. I, once again, I went on the road and I came back and Barry said, hey, you know, you got to smash on The Temps. I said, what is it? I didn't even know. You know, I got about 12 tunes on them. He said, there's one tune that you have for that album. He said, it's real smash and I'm putting it out next week. So I said, what? So he just put it on the turntable and started playing My Girl. I said, oh yeah, I like that. I like that. He said, that's number one, man. I said, well, I don't know if it's number one or anything, but I like it. And sure enough, it was number one. The Temptations from 1965 and My Girl. You know, it must be nice when someone says, hey, that song you wrote is going to be a smash. And you say, oh yeah, which one? <laughs> <laughs> Still more to come from Smokey Robinson plus another artist who was essentially a one-hit wonder for Motown, but that one hit did wonders for him and his fans. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. Famous Lost Words is heard on radio stations across Canada. And if you would like to sponsor our show and have your message heard by thousands of listeners, email us at famouslostpod at gmail.com. That's famouslostpod at gmail.com. That's right, and Christopher and I will convey your message as best we can without butchering it too badly. That's famouslostpod <laughs> at gmail.com. Let's continue with our tribute to Motown as Smokey Robinson talks about what touring was like for Motown artists back in the day. The concert scene was booming and hustling and bustling at that time. There were always tours, and you had those tours where you had uh, the 15 top acts or the 15 hottest acts in the country were there, you know. We would have um, the integrated tours. We would go down south, and uh, we had to be segregated in dressing rooms, in living facilities, and all that. The white kids would have to get off the bus sometimes and go into the restaurants and bring food out to the black kids, you know, because uh, we couldn't go in the restaurants and things of that type. And then we'd go play places and... Uh, in the South, they would have a lot of places that were, the stage would be in the center of a big place. And on one side of the stage would be the whites, and then on the other side would, would be the blacks. Or else you'd be in a place where they would have a stage down on the floor, and in the seats in the balcony and stuff like that would be the whites, and the blacks would be standing down on the floor, or vice versa. And uh, we had a lot of um, 
hectic times during those days. And I hear the the young people coming along now and they complain about which flight they're going to take. That's, that's amazing to me, man. <laughs> you know, which flight? When we would drive from uh, New England to uh, Tijuana, <laughs> you know, in two days, you know, with eight people in the car, packed. There you go. Just another example of the hardships that many black artists faced back in the day. Tom, the history lesson continues from a man who was there. That was the time or the period of time in show business when the kid next door became famous. Because uh, show business, before the big boom of the 50s and the rock and roll thing like that, was basically a closed area, you know. You had a few people who, especially for the black performer in the white market, you know, you had a few of them, Harry Belafonte, Nat King Cole, Sammy Davis, those people like that who had been around for years and years and years, and that was what it was. You know, they had the top 60 on the pop charts, and at that time, who was on the pop charts? Doris Day, Dinah Shore, Frank Sinatra, Perry Como, these people. And uh, it started to evolve at that time, and it started to go so that the people that I just mentioned to you were taking a back seat to uh, Ronnie and the Doves, or, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, so it, it was, you know, like a real evolution in music, which has taken over, which has lasted and has become the music of today. You find those acts that I mentioned to you, they're all trying to record this kind of music now. That is a great clip about how rock and roll basically democratized music and show business, because now it wasn't just limited to the quote-unquote professionals. Boy, he's got some great stories. Here he talks about the Beatles, and it's fascinating. Well, I would say that the Beatles made a fantastic contribution to the music world in many ways. First of all, because the Beatles, to me, they came along and they were a phenomenon. They were, they, whatever it was, promotional-wise or whatever, made them what they were. To me, they deserved it through their music. And they created a new thing in as much as they brought in the long hair look. They were the first white act to come along that I can ever recall who admitted the fact that their music or their guts came from black people. They had listened to the black acts, the so-and-so and so-and-so, Muddy Waters and these people like this. B.B. King, who, when you find your average uh, person who is naive, really, to the music business, they think B.B. King is a new cat. When my mother, man, I can remember my mother having B.B. King's records, right? And this is when I was a kid, five, six. She had B.B. King records, you know. The Beatles made the world aware of that because I think the world would accept that more so from someone of the stature of the Beatles than they would from a black person coming along and saying, well, hey, I think the Beatles got their stuff from black people. Or I think that they listened to a lot of black records, which inspired them. But these cats came right to the front and they said, oh, yeah, we listened to so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And so and so and so who's that? You know, well, they're the people who are with this record company, that thing, you know. I, I give them a great deal of credit for the popular music scene. You've really got a hold on me. Really got a hold on the Beatles from 1963 with the Smokey Robinson song, You Really Got a Hold on Me. And, you know, the Beatles really wore their influences on their sleeves, but not only that, they helped support those influences by doing cover versions of those songs. Also, let's point out that Motown and Tamla, which is kind of a 
Motown offshoot record label were huge in England, and so those artists and songs had a profound impact on British music. Yeah, indelible. Tom, here's another look at the racial politics of the day. We have had white acts in the company since 1959, (laughs) you know. It's just the fact that none of them ever really became popular until Rare Earth. You know, we've always had white acts, and uh, Rare Earth kind of like broke through the barrier or something. And I think that what broke them through the barrier was that they had recorded a song that I'd written for the Temps a long time ago, Get Ready. And we had had a problem with getting our white acts programmed, really, because all of our blockbusting people were black. You know, so we had a problem with the white stations where they say, well, hey, you know, we don't want to play this, you know, when the Temptations was happening, that thing. And then the black stations didn't want to program the white artists that we had because they said, well, hey, we can't break a white record. So that kind of thing. But uh, when Rare Earth recorded Get Ready, I think a lot of people thought they were black. And so by the time it was known... They were home free. Rare Earth from 1970 in Get Ready, great rock and soul version of the classic Temptations hit written by Smokey Robinson as we celebrate the music of Motown. Another great Motown hit, What Becomes of the Brokenhearted 1966, Jimmy Ruffin. Now, Jimmy Ruffin may be forever known as the older brother of David Ruffin, who got the gig in The Temptations ahead of Jimmy, but he had one glorious moment as a solo artist with the song, What Becomes of the Brokenhearted. It almost didn't happen. Brokenhearted is my favorite, yeah. I think it's the biggest record I've had. It is the biggest. I also dug it before it ever was a hit. You know, even it took it about three or four months to become a hit. When I heard it, I thought that um, it was kind of uh, written for me, even though it wasn't. But I felt that, you know, it was my song. And I told this to the producer, and he uh, finally agreed to let me have a go at it. I try it. And so he, instead of cutting it on a group that is doing very well now, the Spinners, he recorded it on me. What? It was almost a Spinner's song? And what? The Spinners were on Motown? I did not know that. That's crazy. (laughs) Um, Hits bring unique stories from fans. I have strange stories. I was over in England doing a show, and this lady walked up to me, came in the dressing room, uh, and she'd been outside about 10 minutes. The guy said she'd been crying, and she came into the dressing room, and and she wanted me to have a wedding band because she'd met me a couple of years later. She'd met uh, uh, me and she met her husband the same night at a club where I was performing. She said that they came back, they went, they got married, they have a baby. Since that time, they, they separated and, and they decided to come and catch my show again just to get back together and see if they could get themselves together by coming back to where it started. And uh, they had decided to make a go of it again and uh, she was thanking me that, you know, her baby had his father back. And that's, that's the effect the record had on her. As I walk this land Once again, from 1966, Jimmy Ruffin and What Becomes of the Brokenhearted. You know, we've heard that kind of story before, how a specific song means so much to people in their lives and relationships. And then if they ever get a chance to meet the artist behind that song, they tell them and the artist is thinking, wow, that never occurred to me or the song was never intended for that. But it's very gratifying for this for the song performer and probably even more so the songwriter when they hear those stories about their songs. That's Mary Wells from 1964 and My Guys. We celebrate the music of Motown. 
Tom, Barry Gordy signed Mary Wells at age 17 to Motown, where she became their first female star. They hooked her up with Smokey Robinson and wrote a number of her best-known songs, including You Beat Me to the Punch and her biggest hit, the classic My Guy, number one on the Billboard R&B charts and the Hot 100. Now, Mary left Motown at the height of her fame and never recovered her star status. Because at her peak, Wells became the first Motown star to tour the UK when the Beatles asked her to open for them in 1964. So here she is, circa 1987, in conversation with Roger Ashby. How did it feel to have a number one song during the uh, Beatlemania <clears throat> years? Oh, really, really great. Then I didn't understand it too much. Mm -hmm. No, I do. But then, Back then, I suppose you were just going along day by day, record the song, they'd issue it, and of course it was a great thrill to have it go number one. But when you look back on it, and it, it went number one during that British Invasion Beatle period, that was, that was quite something. That's a feather in your cap, isn't it, to, to achieve that? Well, yeah, it was because they were... They were dominating the American charts, and the Americans couldn't basically get really a hit record. I don't know about any other country, mm -hmm. but this probably was going on everywhere. Mm -hmm. So um, none of the American artists could get over them. They had during that time they had one number one position, two, three, four. They had about four records mm -hmm. that no one could get over those records. Did you ever tour Britain? Yes. How did you find the crowds over there? Because I understand that Britain has always has always been fond of Motown music in general. Oh, really great. The earlier years they were more they were they were more, I guess you would say, conservative because you would never know if they liked what you were doing or not until after you finished singing and then you would get the biggest applause, mm -hmm. standing ovation mm -hmm. or whatever. But now they're more they're yeah. more loose. More loose. Yeah. Hmm. You know, they'll let you know right off that they, they're really into your music like American art, American fans are, you know. Mm -hmm. when, you, uh, when you first signed with Motown, did you sign as a recording artist right away, or, or were, you, were you working there in some other capacity? I know that Martha Reeves, I think, started as a secretary, didn't she, when she started at Motown? Well, I started as a singer, but um, in order for me to, to not work, because uh, my mother was getting older and she grew up without a father, so I basically needed a job. They gave me a job as a secretary, and I mailed out records, and I typed out uh, letters and um, packed records and mm -hmm. sent them off to a lot of the radio stations. I was telling one of the disc jockeys yesterday that I was very familiar with a lot of the stations because I remember typing out oh, that's right, too. over and over every day some different records out to them, sending them out to them. How, how did they choose the artists who would record a particular song when Holland Dozier and Holland and the other writers at Motown would, would compose a song? Who decided who would get that song? Or were they written well, for specific people in the first place? Yeah. During those days, um, Barry decided, well, it wasn't quite him. Everything was did with the system, a certain system. Um, he had all the producers to produce the, the artist, a song or two on the artist. Mm -hmm. Then he would find out which one he thought fit each artist, and that's who the producer would produce. But they all would do on the album. It wasn't just one producer that would do the whole album. It would, do, it would maybe be about three different producers on the album, so everything wouldn't sound alike. Oh, I see. Really, yeah. What's, what's the favorite song you've ever recorded? What's your favorite song? Um... Probably the most closest ones. All of them are. I was telling them it's just like um, children to a woman. Um, my guy and probably I know for sure. Bye bye baby and my guy. Mm -hmm. um, 
it's a, it's a lot of sentimental feelings involved in it. Um, Bye Bye Baby was the first that got me over. And my guy was the ultimate that made a standard, made me a standard artist. So, mm-hmm. You haven't been with Motown for some time now, have you? But Since 60, latter part of 64. That far back? Yes. Oh, wow. Well, why did you leave Motown? Well, we were having business problems. <laughs> you must have been one of the first artists to leave then. Yeah. Hmm. You, well, I was one of the first artists to really be as huge that that yeah you know mm-hmm. and have so I would have the problems faster. Is it true that at Motown you were getting three cents per record, and when you left Motown and went to your next company, they signed you for fifty thousand dollars? Um, well, it was one hundred and fifty thousand. One hundred and fifty per year. That's a that's a good reason to change companies. You beat me to the. Mary Wells and You Beat Me to the Punch from 1962. That's a great interview with Mary, who is one of the earliest artists to leave Motown, as you said. Tragically, about five years after this interview, Mary Wells passed away at the age of 49 from cancer. Okay, Christopher, when we first started putting together this episode, I was hoping to have enough for one full episode, but we've definitely got enough content for two. On our next episode... Diana Ross and Mary Wilson of the Supremes remember the glory days of Motown. A very young Michael Jackson talks about how the Jackson 5 got started. Stevie Wonder talks about his first massive hit. The Temptations chat about the legacy of their music. Lionel Richie talks about walking the halls of Motown for the first time. And Martha Reeves explains how she started as a Motown secretary and became one of the biggest stars of the 1960s. I think this is one of our best shows ever. Love this stuff. Oh, I second that emotion. (laughs) Famous Lost Words is created and produced by me, Tom Jokic, and co-written by him, Christopher Ward. Technical producer, Adam Karsh. Executive producer, Sarah Cummings. Don't forget, there are so many episodes to binge on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, why wouldn't you tell all your friends about Famous Lost Words? Talk to you next time. Bye.